All right, welcome back to the nitty gritty. Let's get political, people. Let's go. Let's go. One of my, honestly, I would say one of my favorite politicians. Like we had in today from the great state of Utah, former Congressman Jason Chaffetz from the great city of Alpine, Utah. Isn't that where he lives? Uh Uh-huh. And our connection with Jason is, or, or Mr. Jason Chaffetz. Sorry, I just, I feel like he has to be held, you know. It's okay, Spence. It's a big deal. <laughs> Listen, Spence and I were Twitter friends. We, I can call him Spence. But um, yeah. we're talking about the governor, of course, yep. Spencer Cox, who's doing a hell of a job, by the way. But um, Clint Curtis, brother Clint Curtis, your brother-in-law. Got Hermano de sangre. Yeah. <laughs> and it was fascinating, to say the least. Like this guy, he's awesome. He's awesome. He does not. He just talks. Like he, he doesn't care. It was the same way I felt with when the governor came on, Spencer. Yeah. Yes, of course. But just a, <laughs> just a real dude. Like it yeah. didn't feel scripted. It didn't feel rehearsed. Right. Yeah. Like he was. I mean, he, he was funny. He had a good time. He told us some in, really fascinating stories. Fascinating stories. He didn't name names, unfortunately. Yeah. You'll hear once where I'm like, well, who? Who are you talking about? But no, he did not shy away from questions. I mean, I don't think we hit him, hit him with any like super hardball questions. But the one he would have answered him, I think, if we did. Well, like, so. the one thing that's just wild is this guy is just hanging out with us here. And he has the most powerful people in the world. In his cell phone. That they, he, but he talks to you on a regular basis. Yeah. That's kind of crazy. It's it's crazy. And it's hard not to be, it's hard to be on this side of the table with some of, with a guest like him. Because it can be like, he has seen some stuff. He, he knows some people. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this guy was the, you know, he was over, he was, he was the chair of the oversight committee, which, I mean, that's like, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a powerful, that's a powerful man. And so. But there was like zero ego. No. Yeah. I like mean, zero. He is. It's funny. Like, I think if you don't know him, he can come off as kind of a politician, like on TV and stuff. Cause he's so well-spoken and he's, you know, he's a good looking guy, but, but what you don't, but, but I think the thing that I've always liked about him is it's not ego. It's just knowledge. He, he is a sharp yeah. guy like he knows his stuff and it's not about whether you like to talk or not it's whether you can and and he told the funny story with president trump about that yeah <laughs> oh yeah right but i mean he can sit in a room and talk politics because he knows his stuff yeah. like that's where his confidence obviously comes from but he's got a very interesting background you know he's I mean, college football was changed because of him. He wouldn't really admit that. But he kind of did. <laughs> but he kinda, the Chaffetz rule, you'll hear about that. We talk about that. But um, fascinating man. I hope he gets back in. I, I would love to vote for him to get back. I think we need more politicians like Jason Chaffetz because he's, you know, just YouTube him one day if you want to see how, like, ballsy this guy can be because he will. He, t- he tells the story about the Joint Chief, you know, talking to the chair of the joint chiefs of staff. I mean, it's the highest ranking military official. And he straight up told him like, I know more about this than you do. That's a problem. Yeah. Could you imagine like your house would get blown up in other countries 
if you did that you don't, <laughs> to the that top military guy. Yeah, so doesn't happen. Family man, great guy. We had a blast with him. I think you guys will really like it. Yep. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode, Nitty Gritty. We have a very special guest with us, Mr. Jason Chaffetz. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank you. Special <laughs> guest. You say that every week, don't Actually, you? I don't think we do. Do we? I mean, sometimes it's... I'm like the special <laughs> needs guest. Is that the idea? <laughs> Not at all. I have to give him credit. He hung out with me for a while just to can kind of get things going. And because I was late. <laughs> I'm still... Yeah. We're getting better at the calendar, though. We're getting we're getting yeah. better. I at got it. like an official calendar invite. I was highly impressed. Most podcasts don't do that. You guys are coming up in the world. Yeah, no, we're like really after work with the host, 118 but. episodes, right? <laughs> yeah. You figured that out. <laughs> yeah, we found a software to do it for us, so we don't have to. Yeah, called Google. Yeah, exactly. This new thing that you guys are getting into. Yeah, it's gonna work. Some people Google. call us techies, so that's okay. <laughs> But I, I, that hasn't really entered my mind since I've been here. <laughs> Interesting. But we got to shout out Clint for getting this set up. Clint Curtis. So neighbors with Clint. You've known Clint for a long time. Yeah, you can't really pick your neighbors. They just show up and <laughs> and then you don't want to move. And Clint is a good guy. His wife's even better. And I love his kids. His kids are just like the cutest kids in the world. So. Yep. We we put up with Clint, but it's really as have you bought and his wife. Have you bought any of Hudson's creations that um, he started making during COVID? Y- yes, and <laughs> and Hudson is like the most proper kid. He's like so nice and he's funny. Yep. And now he's getting old enough that he likes to like poke fun at you a little bit. Yeah. And I love it. He he's got a little sarcasm going in that. Yeah, I love. He's Hudson. blossoming that way. I just I call him Steve. You so do. he made up a nickname one day and he called himself Steve. And so for the last couple of years, I just call him Steve. Because oh. that was, it was I'll like do it. A I'll see if he turns nickname. around. I'll see him and say, hey, Steve. Yeah. And see if he turns around. Yep. Yeah. So, oh man, there's all sorts of fun stuff that I want to chat about. Um, but I'd like to learn more about just kind of where you grew up, just kind of you, family, like just kind of where you came from before we kind of jump into what you've been going and what you've been doing. Yeah, I I was uh, I was born in uh, Northern California, up in Los Gatos, okay. the Cats, okay. uh, uh, up in the Bay Area. I only lived there until I was about seven. Uh, we lived in a little place called Saratoga. And boy, you kind of wish dad and mom had kept the real estate there because it's like ridiculous <laughs> how expensive it is there now. Yeah. When I grew up, it was like cow fields and, you know, wide open spaces. Now it's like you, you better have, you know, a billion dollars in order to live there. And my parents had this um, out in Santa Cruz, which is a uh-huh. beach. They, I've got all these pictures playing on the beach and like, oh, yeah, that was our beach house. I'm like, couldn't you have kept that? I mean, did oh, you have to sell it? Cruise beach beach house. House. Yeah, can you imagine? Well, it wasn't so ritzy back then, but it was oh, a lot of fun. But I only sure. lived there until I was seven. Then um, my dad, uh, we he was very entrepreneurial, and he became the, the managing general partner of the Los Angeles Aztecs, which is the old North American soccer league. Oh, wow. uh, and so we moved to Southern California, and um, that, was, that was a good experience. I lived there for... Uh, like gosh, four years or so, okay. and played a lot of soccer, and then, and then uh, they sold the the soccer team, and so then we ended up moving to Scottsdale, Arizona, 
and uh, lived there until I was a junior in high school. My parents got went through a divorce okay. and uh, ended up going with my dad up into Colorado. So my, my senior year, I was up in Winter Park, Colorado. I graduated from Granby, up in Granby. The, I was a Middle Park Panther, 49 people in our graduating class. <laughs> 26 guys, 23 girls, and the odds were against me. It didn't didn't work out well there. Um, <laughs> the odds were but then I, I, I kicked a lot of soccer balls, and I kicked some footballs, and I ended up getting a scholarship to, to BYU. I was on the BYU football team back in the day. So, what, it, I mean, what made you want to come to BYU? Um, they gave me free stuff. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I was actually going to go to Arizona State. Um, I kicked a lot of soccer balls, so then I thought, oh, I'll kick some footballs. You know, it's kind of one of those things early in my life that changed my life, where the vice principal of our high school came and said, hey, you guys on the soccer team, we need somebody to kick footballs on the football team. Well, we our football team sucked. They were terrible. <laughs> we were like 0-10 that year. Somehow, some way, uh, me as a junior in high school said, yeah, I'll try out. And I, I tried out, and I was the only one to, to try out. So guess what? I... I made oh, it. You got it. I, I got it. And I, I remember <laughs> the going odds were in your favor. I remember going home and telling my parents that I was now on the football team and they looked at me like, Can we talk about this? Because like, you know, my I, I was not a big kid. I was tall, but I was super skinny. And the football team wasn't making a whole lot of sense to them and had to learn how to put on the pads and and uh, but in between my junior and, and senior year, my dad bumped into a guy named Fred Steinfort who played for the Denver Broncos. And they had just cut him. He had played like 12 years in the NFL. He had a Super Bowl ring. He, he, was, he was good. And I think he really missed the game. And he agreed with my dad that he'd come out and look at me. And I, I, I was showing some promise. And he kind of put me on one of those Mr. Miyagi, you know, do this. If you do everything I, you, yeah. I tell you, then you'll be a good kicker. And it worked. And so for those, was he a kicker? He, yeah, he, he. I mean, he played for the Broncos, played okay. for the Raiders. Okay. Um, and he turned me into a really good kicker. Where I was an all right high school kicker, he turned me into like a college level kicker. So, like, what does that mean? Like, what, like, what, what changes? What makes somebody a really good kicker outside? Is it just accuracy? This is super ignorant on my end. I watch football all the time. I played it. But I don't know, like, what would make. Yeah, it's so funny to different. me because I always listen to these commentators talking about the kicking game, and I just giggle because, like, they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> My only experience is from Ace Ventura and laces out. <laughs> laces. So you actually practice with the laces in because sometimes the laces face you, and you don't want to be like, "Hey, will you please turn that ball a little bit?" Like, you know, basketballs don't have laces, right? But footballs do. And so you you just got to learn to kick it. And it, you know, it's always funny. It's not right hash, left hash. Doesn't, oh, he's on the left hash. It's going to be a hard kick. And like, shut up. You just, <laughs> all you're doing is kicking from point A to point B. And the difference between, I think, high school, college, and pros in large part is trajectory. So you figure seven yards away from somebody well, when you start playing at the college level, you got a guy who's 6'5 and can dunk a basketball. Yeah. So the guy's jumping 10 plus feet. And you figure by the time the surge comes, that's five yards. So at five yards, you got to have that ball going higher than 10 feet. 
And so I see these guys in practice or somebody in practice all, oh, I kicked a 70-yard field goal. Like, oh, shut up. You can't do that in a game. First of all, the pressure. The second of all, you can't get that trajectory yeah, and make it that far. Yeah, you're going to hit somebody in the butt or in the back. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it was, there's certain muscles and I did a ton of sit-ups. Now, I haven't done a ton of sit-ups in years, but but I back in that, a lot of sprinting. It's just that for those of you that play golf, it's it's sort of like you learn to hit your nine iron or your or your or your wedge in such a way that you can get exceptional height. Yeah, and you just gotta kick it straight. It's okay. not. I don't know. You get into a groove once you kind of get past the crowd and the the anxiety of it all, and you know, you sit on the sideline for an hour and a half, and then you got to run on the field and one swing of your leg, and and you better make that forty three yard field goal. So. Yeah. So then you got recruited down to go to BYU. Well, I originally I was going to go to Arizona State, and now I can say that I they gave me an illegal tryout. I didn't know that. I di- oh. I didn't know that as a college prospect that they couldn't work you out. And I had told them that I was coming back to Arizona because they were recruiting me pretty heavily. And I said, look, I'm going to be in in visiting my mom in Arizona over the, over the Christmas holiday. And they said, you know, if you just show up at this park on this day, <laughs> there just might be a coach there. And sure enough, I showed up at this park and um, brought some footballs and started kicking. And some guy got out of his car after he kind of looked around and made sure nobody was around. And they worked me out for a good hour, hour and a half. Wow. And there were no field goal posts. Uh, we put a garbage can out and he would have Trying me- to kick into it? Yeah. And I- you know, when you're that good, when you can kick like that, you you can actually hit it and get really darn close. Wow. So they put a garbage can out 60 yards, 65 yards, and you say, all right, kick it in here and kick it over here and and then uh, kick a short one, kick a high one, kick a long one, kick a, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then, and then just talking to me. Anyway, they offered me a scholarship, but then right before the signing date, Daryl Rogers, who was the head coach, he called one night and he said, uh, Jason? And I said, yeah. He said, what's up, coach? And he said... Remember that scholarship I was going to offer you? I am so sorry, but that's just not going to happen because tomorrow the Detroit Lions are going to name me the head coach. Oh. And I'm leaving Arizona State, and the athletic director is not going to honor this scholarship. But I will do everything I can to get you placed. And true to his word, uh, he followed up. Think about how busy he is. He's becoming the head coach of the NFL team, yeah. right? He called Lavelle Edwards and pretty much sight unseen. BYU gave me uh, a scholarship. They sent me out. I took a took a flight. I went into Lavelle's office, Lavelle Edwards' office, the head coach, and uh, he has this intimidating button under his door, and it just closes automatically. And you sit in this intimidating helmet. Have you ever seen those helmet chairs? Like it's no, it's like a it's like a huge oversized helmet, almost like one of the hands, but it's the but helmet. it's like a it. In it, but it was a chair. Yeah, and you sit in, it and it's terribly awkward. And I think that was all by design. You're not supposed to be comfortable, and you sit in this chair. And I was all prepared to talk about football, but you know, being BYU, Lavelle gave me basically an ecclesiastical uh, interview. He wanted to know about my family and drugs and lifestyle, and you know, I, he asked me some really personal questions. Yeah. And they really? Offered, they, oh, yeah. That's interesting. Well, and you weren't a member of the church. No. No, I, I'd i never been to Utah. And, yeah. Uh, I think I took a train ride through Utah. Okay. Um, 
from I think we went from Vegas. We were going over to Colorado, but I I didn't know anything about you. So what was what was Lavelle like? He was very you know grandfather like. He had those big jowls, and he was very nice. <laughs> he didn't ask me a single question about football. It was all about my family and my life and school and what did I want to do and you know and ask point blank you know have you do do you drink alcohol have you done drugs are you you know can you pass a drug test you know he was very yeah he got very you know and after whatever it was 20 25 minutes um he said all right go have fun and and then they offered me a scholarship and it changed my life because it brought me to i rolled in here with a you know honda crx and everything i owned and a couple hundred dollars in my wallet and uh I didn't know a single person in this state, not a, not a one and uh, changed my life. Wow. That's awesome. What was your experience? I mean, what was it like at BYU? Like, uh, like coming I loved in that didn't know about it, not a member of the church. I mean, I mean on the church side of it, most people assumed I was a member of the church and quite frankly, my lifestyle was conducive to, to being here. It wasn't yeah. like a big change in my lifestyle. So, um, and I enjoyed school and, um, and I thrived on the football team. So, you know, when you're on a football team, you kind of have this instant mix of friends and for sure, you know, and, and BYU had just won the national championship. So there's all kinds of attention on it. So yeah. you, you kind of become an instant, you know, kind of minor celebrity status. And so you don't have friends, you don't have problem kind of meeting people and opening doors and having the welcome carpet rolled out for you. Yeah. Cam, you had a funny story. Yeah, so I did want to. I, I don't know. Do many people talk to you about the helmet thing still? Yeah, <laughs> it worked. The Chaffetz rule? No. I want to know if it's a rule. <laughs> I want to know if it was you that made that rule. It might have been. Yeah. <laughs> the so, timing but, <laughs> was such that it kind of looks like that, but I don't know. I get a lot of beef for this, and I, I think it's awesome. Look, I had this helmet. It did not fit my face. <laughs> And as soon as I made, you know, a field goal or something, I take it off. And right. just because I didn't take it off, if I missed, that that shouldn't tell you. You shouldn't read anything into that. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think I don't know. I I think it's hilarious, but it's. I think it'd be kind of cool to have that rule named after you, <laughs> right? So we might have saved some kids. Who knows? So what is it? The, oh yeah, sorry. I should explain that. So after you kicked a successful field goal, he would take his helmet off and run to the sidelines. And so now it's a rule that you can't you can't take your helmet off before you hit the sidelines. If you, you get, do, you gotta sit out. Like you can't play the next well, play. That's, well that's if it you falls get a off. Penalty, but yeah. you get a you get a I think it's an unsportsmanlike if uh-huh. you take it off before you get off the sidelines. That rule but. just happened to change. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well and who cares? It's not like the play's dead, right? I mean I, anyway, I got I some grief that, that maybe I was, you know, smiling for the camera or something like that. <laughs> and who cares if you I were? smile all the time right, anyway? Right. It's like that, uh, I'm not totally buying this one. Well, it's funny because I always, I kind of feel so. I feed the New Orleans Saints once a month. I uh-huh. go out there and cook for them, and what? And I and I do a ton with BYU football. But it's one thing that I hate about football is it is so hard to remember who's who because they're always wearing a stupid helmet. Yeah. So even if it was for that, I think that that's okay. I mean, especially now with the NIL, like name, you know, name image likeness, it's like, you know, you take it off a little early, let people know who you are. There's nothing wrong with that. 
So anyway. Well, as long as you make the kick, you know, well, it, it's funny. It's like. Right. And is that, was that what distinguished it? Or was it like a superstition thing? That like, might have been the case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because my my friends kind of, especially, I, I, I speak a lot with uh, Trey Gowdy. Trey Gowdy's congressman out of South Carolina, former congressman. And I, he, he heard me speak one time and he said, what was that? And I told him that I said, you know, I really had a great time at BYU. And the reason I could run for Congress is we never lost a game by the margin of my missed kicks. And he's like, what are you talking about? I said, look, you can't miss a field goal and then lose the game and then expect to run for Congress. They're going to run you out of town. <laughs> You know, and if, if we had lost a game because of my, my missed kicks, I'd be like living in Arizona or something. And anyway, he's always giving me grief about that. And so, you know, I watch these football games and I see these kickers. Like, I remember watching a U of U game. And while everybody else saw the U of U kicker miss one, I, I was looking at him thinking, you know what? There's a guy who will never run for Congress. Just take him off the table. He's impossible. He's not going to win. He can't run. I wonder how many votes you would actually lose. To because there oh, are you'd some be surprised. Hard, oh, I, I would. There are hardcore people, and they yeah. all remember. And yep. so, I, I'm very fortunate that way. That we had <laughs> look. When I left BYU, I had five school records. Right. But let's also remember that Ty Detmer was the quarterback. So yeah. that's a much more of a testament to the quarterback than it is to. <laughs> Jason Chaffetz, because I, I they were all extra point records. Right. I still have two of them. Three of them are gone now, but um, that's because we were just lighting it up and putting the ball in the end zone. So often. many points. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What, what are the hey, two? I have, a, just... I have a New Orleans Saints story. Can I Do tell you? That? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with well, I was engaged in politics, right? I was a member of Congress for eight and a half years. And do, during that, you have to raise a bunch of money. Right. So one of the things I did in my congressional district, which included Deer Valley, is I'd have an annual ski fundraiser. People would come from around the country. They'd go skiing. They'd go to my fundraiser. So about four o'clock in the afternoon, I had this, I would, you know, rented out this little room down in the kind of the lobby area of the Montage Hotel. Right. And... um and we put out some food. There's like, you know, slices of pizza and fruit and, you know, all kinds of just cheese and whatever yeah. you would get. It's like little snacks. Little snacks so that we had this little reception. So people could go skiing and then they can come back in. So I wandered down about, I don't know, 345. You know, it starts at four o'clock. And um, just before it starts, all of a sudden these little kids come running over and they just start grabbing this pizza and they start eating. They start eating this stuff, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a <laughs> And sure enough, here comes dad, like, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Like, I, I, I'm like, it's okay. We got plenty of food. And it was Drew Brees. Yep. Drew Brees was there, and he's like, I am so sorry. And I, I said, no, look, I got kids. I totally get it. We got plenty of food. And he's like, are you sure? Are you sure? I was like, yeah, go ahead. And, and then... I think some other relatives came over and they started, he said, well, can I pay you for this? I'm like, no, 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 just, <laughs> just, you're fine. And he said, I told him what we were doing. And then he said, well, you know, would it be helpful if I stayed for a little while? And no way. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it would, yeah, it would be helpful. <laughs> so he stayed, he greeted the people, he took pictures, you know, so he just happened to be there with his family. He, well, he was skiing. He was playing. He goes there every year. That's oh, his really? spot. Yeah, when he said montage, I was like, I guarantee it's Drew Brees. Yeah, no, it's true. And, and his like, boys are crazy. 
Like they would totally run in and just start down the food. <laughs> yeah, there was nothing dad was going to do about yeah. it. I don't care if you're Drew Brees or whatever. <laughs> There's no way dad was stopping him. Right. So dad was either going to have to pay for it or like, but I was like, no, no, you're fine. He did. He wanted to get out his wallet and give me it. But I'm like, no, no, no. It's And so he kind of felt guilty. He's like, I'll take pictures. I'll stay. I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah, that'll that's work. That's pretty cool. That'll work. That is so So I'm kind Drew of a Brees. Drew Brees fan. Oh. Super it, nice guy. That's the crazy thing is. You know, I've, I always hear the term like you don't want to meet your heroes sometimes, you know, but opposite with that. He is the nicest man ever. Yeah. The fact that he offers like would it help if I stayed like that's that's crazy. He knew he would. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. Of course. But what a nice guy. Yeah. Dang it. I wish I knew that story before he retired because now I don't really ever get to talk to him. But that's that's pretty cool. He probably still goes to montage every year. No, he does. Yeah. He was just in Deer Valley. After last season, they come up every winter. Yeah. No, I so I can't get him to come down here, but it's like one of these days you can just bring food up. I'm like, whatever. <laughs> we'll see. So you kept talking about like BYU changing your life. Like what about going there changed your life? Well, look, I like I, I joined the church. <laughs> okay. Um, I got an education. I got a good job. Did you ever try to go to the NFL? So I had kicked with enough guys that were NFL players that I knew I was a pretty good college kicker, but that I was not a college, I was not the pro level kicker. And the New York Jets were the one team that talked to me and they said, Hey, listen, we've got a starter. He's really good. He's going to be our starter. But if you want to come in, we need to keep him honest. And quite frankly, he can't kick every day. So, you know, if you wanted to come, I think you make like $600 over a couple months period of time. And he said, we would probably sign you to be, you know, just keep the other guy honest yeah. and, and do kickoff returns, stuff like that. And we just had a preliminary, it wasn't an offer, but it was a, a preliminary discussion about it. And I had a good job. I met the girl who ended up being my wife and I, I just like- Just ready to get on? Well, I just knew that I wasn't going to make it. Yeah. And, you know, it, looking back, I think it probably would have been fun to strap on the- on the green and put on that jets helmet and, you know, spend a few weeks at, at camp, but yeah. it just, the timing was bad. And I, you just being brutally honest with myself that those guys at that level can kick that much higher, that much further. It's just, no matter how hard I tried, I just could not do it. And yeah. I was good at it. And, but I couldn't, I couldn't kick at their level. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So then where did you go from college then? Like, but so I started working at Newskin Enterprise. I did that for 10 and a half years. And the last job I had was general manager for Australia and New Zealand, which oh, was wow, kind of fun. Wow. So we went and lived down there and then did some entrepreneurial stuff. And and uh, my mom had passed away from cancer uh, in 1995 after a 10-year battle with breast cancer. And that that's hard. That I mean, to say it's hard is just an understatement. Uh, but that was the same year that the Huntsman family started the Huntsman Cancer Institute. Okay. And so I was very touched by that. And when fast forward to 2003, when John Huntsman Jr. was going to run for governor through a mutual friend, I said, Hey, can I, can I come up and meet you? And just, it, it, I was thinking with my wife and I had nothing else. We'd just say, thank you. Yeah. For literally pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into fight cancer. And uh, sure enough, we got a 10 minute meeting turned into 30 minutes. Next thing I know, I uh, got an offer to be the communications person for John Huntsman for governor, which is a huge pay cut based on what I was used to making. Yeah. And, um, 
but we did it. We thought about it, prayed about it, did it. And, uh, and then a few weeks later, John Huntsman said, uh, Hey, congratulations. You're going to be the new campaign manager. And I said, Whoa, time out, John. Look, <laughs> listen, I have never done this before. Like I've never, I've never, I've never run a campaign. And he said, ah, don't worry about it. I've never run for governor before. We'll figure it out. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then he won. He became the 16th governor and we had a similar conversation and he invited me to stay on as his chief of staff. And I same conversation. John, look, I've never done this before. I think, you know, it's 22,000 employees and $14 billion budget. I mean, something like that. And he said, oh, don't worry about it. I've never been governor before. We'll figure it out. And like, he, he really did believe on sort of that that book, Good to Great, yep. you know, get the get the right people on the bus. Absolutely. And, and we got along and it was working for us. And and so I, I was with him for two years and two days before I I uh, I departed and um and then decided to run for Congress myself. And so was there anything inside of you growing up that like were you either interested in government and politics always? Like was there something that was always there? Like well, the, the little yeah, the kind of footnote asterisk that's kind of funny about this is I, I need a flip chart, but <laughs> um my dad's follow me here, my dad's first wife yeah, okay. was a na- named Catherine. Okay. And they got married, had a son. And, but the best thing that ever happened to me is they got divorced. Right. Because my dad married my mom and had me. Okay. But Catherine, also known as Kitty, went over and married a guy named Michael Dukakis, who was the 1988 presidential uh, Democratic nominee. Yeah. But he was also the governor of Massachusetts. And so I kind of saw that from afar and was very intrigued by that. Okay. Kind of thought, oh, maybe I'm a Democrat. And then <laughs> then I learned to read and write. And then I figured out <laughs> figured out that I like politics, but I I'm not I'm not that stupid. So <laughs> so uh, I figured out that I was a very conservative person. And I just you know, you get married, get a job, have kids. I just was a very conservative person. And yeah. so, but you know what? He, to his credit, um, Governor Dukakis, Michael Dukakis, was very encouraging of participating. I, I think he truly does believe, as I do, we need good people on both sides of the aisle. Yeah. And, you know, you need to have a dialogue and you need to be able to have a discussion. You need to be able to, and people look at things differently. That's That's why we have a system that's set up the way it is. It'd be a lot easier to just have a dictator, but nobody wants to live like that. So, um, so that, that, that had that little bug there, but you know, I was 16 years in the local business community before I really touched or even did anything like that. Yeah. So what made you want to stay in it as opposed to going back to, well, you know, I quit, right? So yeah, (laughs) (laughs) well, yeah, but like what made you stay in it for as long as you did? Um, I, I mean, I was passionate about the work. I love the, I love the job. I love being in the fight. Like I, like I really dug that, but I happen to love my family and my kids even more. And I was really missing that, you know, when I was in Congress and then certainly when I became the chairman of the oversight committee, uh, it's the second largest committee in all of the house of representatives. And it's very combative, um, which I did not mind at all. I just thought it was part of the process and good government and that you're supposed to challenge, um, you know, speak truth to authority and, and anyway, so, but my life was out of balance. I was home four, three, four, sometimes five days a month. Oh, wow. God. I would come home sometimes for 12 hours. 
And you know that that kind of stuff just um, that that gets to you. And yeah. it, it, again, I I missed a lot of my kids growing up, particularly our youngest daughter. And so, in my last term, I was elected to the fifth term in Congress. You know, I left months into it because I thought I can sit here for another eighteen months, but then I will miss my daughter's kind of junior, senior year in high school, and I've already missed everything else she was basically what i have to look first or second grade when i got started doing this yeah so you know it's funny because we elect people and we say oh we want them to be family oriented we you know family first and all that and then when somebody actually does it then they want to say oh you quit you quit her and like oh what didn't you say that you were family first and so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not the first person to leave a job, you know? <laughs> and so, um, you know, had to put my life back in balance and back in order. It was nothing that happened other than I just missed and loved my family. And yeah. and so, I don't know, maybe I'll go do it again. We're, life's different now. My wife and I are empty nesters now. And But at the time, I, I know I made the right decision for me and my family. And, uh, you know... Um, but I, I loved the work. I really did love it, but I loved my family more. What surprised you most when you got like in government and especially like in the Congress and you were doing all of that stuff? Um, there are some surprises. Um, you can, I think, get a lot done, but I'm amazed by how much stuff doesn't get done because I wish the process, Harry Reid, who was the Senate majority leader at the time, had said, you know, Democrat. And he said, look, you'll never lose an election because of process. And I think that is so fundamentally wrong. It, it kind of gets into the weeds, but if you have a bad process, then you get a bad result. The 1972 Budget Act, only one time in the history of our nation since then, has the process actually worked the way it's laid out in the law. And that is, you go through the process of this appropriation. Instead, what happens is you get an omnibus, you get a you get a continuing resolution. You get like one vote on trillions of dollars. Like it's yay or nay. Yeah. Like, wait a second. How come we're not voting on each and individual issue and each thing? And then we can really find out where the nation, how come we aren't doing a zero based budget? You know, how can we just, how come 75% of the budget is mandatory programmatic spending? It happens whether or not members of Congress vote on it. Like I was really eye opening. And the part I gravitated to was oversight. I I just I had these pillars that I came up with before I was in Congress: fiscal discipline, limited government, accountability, and a strong national defense. When I got there, I realized that one of those was really weak compared to the other three, and that was the accountability. That's why I gravitated to this oversight committee and and did well there because. I became the chairman after only three terms, and I think it was only the fifth time in a hundred years that it ever happened. So, um, I got some good mentoring there, some good advice, and focused on that component of it. But I also thought the other big disappointment is I think I thought that the national media, the traditional media, would give you more of a fair shake. I I I left with a very bitter, sour taste in my mouth that they have political agendas. And I, I grew up thinking that the MSN, the, the NBCs and CBS and ABCs of the world and, and all these outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post that 
they would write it as it is. That's not yeah, the case. Yeah. I mean, I could sit here. We don't have enough. There's not enough space on the internet to explain to you how much, uh, how political they can be. Yeah. And and how they have goals and objectives. And if you don't fit their narrative, and as a Republican calling out Barack Obama's administration, I didn't fit their narrative. Yeah. So I did not. I. I it's just. I did every show I you know, that I was asked to do and probably turned down more than half of the requests that I got. But I was shocked at how little they would actually fairly write something. I didn't want them to write it just from my vantage point, but to have none of my vantage point in there, and I'm the chairman of the oversight committee, come on. Yeah. You know, it's just, it was really bad. That was very disheartening. So like when you were the chairman, did I, I would assume that would probably get most people to pick up a call from you. I mean, you're kind of yeah. sitting in a pretty important position, right? So if you either needed to talk to someone, wanted some advice, I would assume there was probably some pretty cool conversations that you got to have because of that. When, when I first got to Congress, uh, one of the they do these orientations and one of the more senior members of Congress there said, hey, look, when you get here, you get a really cool business card, use it. Because most people, if you call them, they'll answer the phone. And you did that it hasn't been that way in your life in the past. And it's very true. Yeah. When you're chairman of the oversight, it's it's one of two things. They're either yes, sir, no, sir, or uh, that person doesn't live here. <laughs> either they're running for the hills, right? So, um, you know, one of the things I had is, is very unique in all the country is – I had unilateral subpoena authority. I there aren't wow. anybody else in the world that can in the country that can just write a subpoena and submit it, and it is a subpoena. You, you most have to go through a process yeah. and get a judge to sign it, and do not me. And so I felt a huge responsibility, and I think we found the right balance by not overusing it. But again, one of my biggest disappointments was the enforcement of that. That subpoena is only as good as it's being as it's as it can be enforced. And the House of Representatives is very weak as its supposed third branch of government. You know, its own branch of government. They never enforced their own. There's a deep, rich history I could get into here because the committee was formed in 1814, and they went through some of these gyrations about enforcing subpoenas. Um, some of which in, involve some very you know, Francis Scott Key and some really Sam Houston, some really interesting people in our, in our nation's history. But it was actually, um, I believe it was Judge Gorsuch is a Supreme Court justice. I think it was his mother that worked for the Reagan administration that actually turned the tide against Congress issuing its own subpoenas. And she thumbed a nose at it, and Congress didn't stand up for itself. She, she, I think she's Secretary of Education. I got to check. I'm probably wrong on that. But um, enforcement of those subpoenas, I don't think they're optional. I, I really don't. Yeah. And uh, But you get into this legal entanglement, and people pretty much thumb their nose at it. And uh, and that's, a, that's bad for the nation, I think. Yeah. So by enforcement of subpoenas, you mean that – they don't have to show up. Well, and- we had a person by the name of Brian Pagliano who was the IT specialist working for Hillary Clinton. Uh-huh. So we were doing the whole Clinton email <laughs> scandal, yeah, right? Right. This is a guy who worked for the State Department um, and 
for four years as the IT specialist on what's called the seventh floor, which is the top floor. And um, he signed an immunity agreement. The Department of Justice granted him immunity. So I decided that I wanted to talk to him. He has immunity. Um, he has nothing at risk, but I wanted to figure out what was going on there with the Clinton email thing because they set up their own convenient you know, right. email server and system. Uh, Department of Justice said there was nothing nefarious there. Well, it just so happens that Hillary Clinton set up this email uh, server the same day that she started her Senate uh, confirmation, but James Comey insisted that, oh, that was just a coincidence. Uh, yeah, it was just a coincidence. So I wanted to talk to this Brian Pagliano. He has immunity. Uh, he was the IT specialist, and I sent over a document request to the State Department. I wanted to see Pagliano's, all of his emails. They're government emails, and I had a right to see him. Finally, after months, they came back and they said, he never sent, nor did he ever receive an email. You work in IT? <laughs> you don't even have an email account? You guys are lying to me, you lying sack of, like, I mean, they were just lying to me. So anyway, I called him to, be, to come before the committee. He refused, I issued a subpoena. He didn't show up. I issued another subpoena. I, gave, I had the US Marshals serve him the subpoena. He didn't show up. So we held him in contempt and uh, didn't go anywhere. Just wow. would not enforce it. Part of that was the Republican leadership's fault. Um, but that kind of thing, I think, is just, it's wrong for the nation. His attorney said, oh, well, he's going to plead the fifth. And he said, well, then he can come to my committee and stand there and plead the fifth. That's right. fine. But people often change their minds once they're there. For sure. And so you, you can't just mail that in. Imagine our justice system in this country if everybody could just say, no, nah, I don't want to do that. <laughs> that's yeah. going to be inconvenient that, for me. That's a hard pass for me, thanks. Yeah. I'm kind of busy. <laughs> no, that doesn't work that way. But that's wow. the way it worked there, and the reporting on it was little to none. It just drove me nuts. Wow. Was there ever a moment, whether it was early on or later in your career, where, like, not like a... Not a pinch me moment because that's the wrong way to say it, but it was like, I can't believe I'm having this conversation. Like, I can't believe I'm talking to this person right now. Yeah, I think there, there are a lot of those. Like, how in the world did I get here? You know, I was the first member of Congress to go into Libya uh, after the Benghazi attack, and they're talking to people who wow. were there on the ground and tears in their eyes and missing their loved ones. I think that I, I've talked about this with Trey Gowdy and some others along the way. I think one of the toughest things you do as a member of Congress is also the best thing you get to do as a member of Congress. I had five um, uh, young men serving in the United States military that died uh, while I was their congressman. Um, they, had, they were from Utah's third congressional district. They died in the line of duty. And to talk to the parents and to speak at their funerals, that that's that's tough. And um, you know, most of them are. I think one was in his thirties. Couple were in their twenties. You know that that was that was some of the most difficult thing. Um, I did some crazy stuff, hiding behind dumpsters to meet people to try to convince them to give me, you know, entrust me with documents and things like that. Wow. Uh, you know, uh, this crazy stuff. I remember flying to a city and then being told to, you know, call this telephone number and now start driving on, 
and then we'll flash our lights and let you know. I mean, we, we were doing like right out of the movie type of stuff that was just <laughs> kind of crazy and fun. Um, and, and then just the people that you get to meet who are just really, they need help. I, I, very satisfying. A lot of immigration cases, a lot of social security cases, a lot of military cases that very satisfying when you actually help solve them. Um, and then, you know, you find yourself questioning people, uh, the chairman of the joint chiefs, you know, it, it, I remember, <laughs> I remember being in a classified meeting with the chairman of the joint chiefs and I am like really laying into him. I mean, I am like beyond being polite here. I was so frustrated with him and I thought, you know what, this is exactly what makes America great. I'm just a representative from Utah and that's the way our system's supposed to work, right? That doesn't happen in other countries. You don't get to kind of yell at the senior most military person. But in yeah. the United States, you can and you do. Yeah. And we had a really good discussion. It was tough. And I, I, I told him, I said, you know what bothers me? I said, I know more about this than you do. And you're the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. And I'm just a Republican member of the House. And how come I know more about it than you do? You know, I was really frustrated with him. This is about Benghazi. And um, those types of things, I think, were, I, I still think back and think, wow, that, <laughs> that was crazy. Jeez. Oh, I, That'd be terrifying. Yeah, in other countries, your house gets blown up. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. For real. That's exactly yeah. right. It's true. I mean, that is cool because it's, it's hard not to be cynical about government, you know, from this side of the table. Because, yeah. yeah, you just feel like. Yeah. You know, I hate that oversight committee story. Like, I hate that you, you know, put a subpoena out there and somebody can just not show up. Yeah, it's so wrong. It, is it because of his connection with the Clintons or can anybody just not show up? Well, I, I think in part it was because he knew that the media was not going to continue to run the story. Oh, good point. There wasn't going to be any ramification. It, right. And it's sort of this it's this circle that's wrong. And that is the department of justice isn't going to do something unless it's the hot fire of the day. Right. If right. it's not showing up on the front page of the post, they, they run to the sound of the, of the, of the sirens. Right. Yeah. And they, the accountability. They, sirens? They, they, they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to yeah. be embarrassed. And so if you can't use that, expose it, and they aren't going to write about it. Then they're probably not going to solve it either. It's just, wow. it, it's just a, protect your own backside type of, you know, there are 110, they think about that, there's 110,000 people at the Department of Justice. You know, I had about 40 employees. So, you know, it's kind of us against the world there. Right. And that was just, there's 2.2 million federal workers uh, at the time, you know, and three point something trillion dollar budget. And so rooting out waste, fraud and abuse, yeah, it's everywhere. Right, oh, wow. Oh, that would be hard. It would be hard. I mean, media is almost the fourth branch of government. If you think about it. I mean, that was fun. You know, you get out there, you get to be on, you know, meet the press and that right. kind of stuff. And those are kind of pinch me moments. Like, what am I doing? You know, I remember growing up watching that stuff and now you're there, but I loved it. It was fun. It was fun. It was an honor to serve. What was Trump like? Um, I Like for, as a person, you know what? I really, as a person, he and I get along fabulously. Now I don't want to create the wrong impression. It's not like he calls me all the time, but he calls from time to time. Um, what was that like the first time, like getting a, like, that would just be so wild. Like, oh, here's, it's Trump. 
hold on. Yeah. Sorry. Hold on. <laughs> yeah. Well, hold on, the first, uh, like the, I wasn't the first, I don't know. We, it, his, uh, his uh, assistant, his secretary called and I could tell it was the White House number and I was just getting on a plane and I told her, I said, she said, the president, I'd like to speak with you. And I said, I can't, I just can't do it right now. I said, I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting on an airplane. There's no way I can have this conversation. She said, no, he really wants to talk to you right now. I said, I can't hold up the plane. I'll call you when I land. So as soon as I land, my phone's got all these, he wants to talk to you right now. And um, so I get off and I was traveling with my wife and I try get over by the kind of quiet place by the baggage claim and we just have this conversation. There was nothing that urgent. He just, we know when he, when he wants to talk, he just wants to talk, you know? He, he really, I really like him on a personal level if everybody kind of saw and got to know him a little bit. Um, he, he can be so personable. I remember I did get to go in the Oval Office. This is kind of a funny story. And it was when I was, uh, I, I, anyway, I go into the Oval Office and um, I have my wife, my wife with me. And, and he says, uh, he stands up from behind the desk and he says, uh, he said, you know, you, you're doing pretty good with Fox. You're doing, you're doing pretty good. And he said, you know, when you first started, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't too sure. You know, he said, not everybody can do television. He said, now look, you can do television. I can do television. Not everybody can do television. When you started, yeah, when, eh, not so much. But now you're pretty good. You're pretty good. And I thought... It was just so funny the way he's, he's just, he just tells you exactly what he's thinking. That's so funny. Yeah. And so again, I don't want to create the wrong impression. He doesn't call all the time, but he does call from time to time. And he always, he always says, how's bears ears? <laughs> Every single time I've ever, <laughs> ever talked to him, he's always likes to bring up bears ears. How's the bears ears? <laughs> Well, thank you, Mr. President. Appreciate what you did on Bears Ears. And it's going great. And I remember before the end of the election, he just called, this was maybe 45 days out. And he kind of said, How are we doing? And how are we doing in Utah? I said, Mr. President, you're doing fine. He said, Do I need to come visit? And I said, No, I don't think so. You're going to win. He said, Are you sure? And I said, Yeah, I'm sure. I said, Look, I'll tell you if, if I thought you needed to be here, if I thought it was in play, but you're going to win. You're going to win Utah in a big way. He's like, you're sure? And I said, yeah, I'm sure. And he said, he said, if I need to come, you tell me and I'll be there. And I said, no, you don't need to be there. Go go fight in these other states where you need to be. And then after you win again, you know, come on, come on back to Utah. We'd love to have you here anytime. But these last 45 days, you don't need to do that. And he said, okay, just checking. Wow. <laughs> That's kind of the way he. Wow. Kind of the way he rolled. Yeah. Were you scared that he wouldn't win Utah? Yeah. <laughs> and then you're gonna get, yeah. What's the phone call you get after that? Well, I thought if he doesn't win Utah, he's not coming back anyway. Yeah, but, <laughs> no, he, he's been, and I've talked to him, you know, since, uh, since he lost, I you know, continue to chat with him from time to time. And he does some things to help some people, you know, when, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but he, uh, I kind of played a role in helping him call, you know, when we had some people that died in Afghanistan and one of them was from Utah. And um, I kind of helped set that up so that 
the family could talk to to President Trump, and they really wanted to talk to him. And and uh, and after the call, um, Donald, not only did I get a call from the family saying, "Hey, thanks for helping that," but then I got a call from Donald Trump, and he said, "I want you to know, I called and I talked to him." And wow, he was he's just very he can be very um, very compassionate like that, which a lot of people don't see. But he spent a good I don't know thirty plus minutes talking wow. to this family and. He didn't have to do that. He's the former president. And, you know, he didn't go out and tout that. It wasn't all over the news. You know, it wasn't like he was trying to grandstand. He was doing it because he was doing the right thing. And then he called and and, uh, wanted to tell me about it. And then he told me a little bit about it. And anyway, so he he does things like that that are behind the scenes. The guy works so hard. He, He really, it's unbelievable. He'll call it like, unbelievable hours in the night he's just you know i think he realizes that utah's two hours behind and yeah. <laughs> he's always got mike lee's so mike, be up at midnight mike lee's got a lot of stories like that too so yeah was this with the group when everybody was pulling out is that yeah the old, 13 yeah. that were killed here God. one of them was from utah yeah that's another one we're going to be hearing about for a long time i think yeah, they're not all out. There's still people there. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Do you feel like sometimes government officials have to like be a certain way publicly, but then they're differently privately? Um, not that they're not true to who they are, but like, do you feel like it's I'll required? There's a bunch a that aren't true to who they are. Yeah, there, there's some. Um, look, I think authenticity wins the day. I think people, I think voters figure out who's being true and honest. And, you know, I've just tried to be as open and transparent. I, you know, I think a big, what cracks me up is when you have um, members of Congress, House or Senate, and they have spokesmen. Like, yeah, yeah. You didn't hire me to be your representatives to have some spokesperson. Like, yeah. what the crap is that? Like, I'll be my own sp- spokesperson. I Thank you very much. Me, you know, yeah. I represent 800,000 people. I don't need to have it filtered by some person who's, you know, in their 20s and really doesn't understand it. You want to talk to the person who was in the room. Who yeah. was, and so it still bothers me to this day. Now, I understand at the presidential level, I understand at the cabinet secretary level that the velocity and the the volume of things that are coming at them, they can't possibly do that. But I really like Donald Trump in that, you know, you can complain about Donald Trump, but he was as open and transparent as anybody. He answered questions every day in front of the media. And I think that's the way to do it. Yeah. And I did that, you know, in my own, and, and but it goes back to this bigger point is I, I think some people just hide and they don't answer those questions. And they try to portray themselves as they think they're supposed to be, as opposed to just, yeah, I did this or no, I didn't do that. And this is why, Yeah, you know, it's like when I was first elected, hadn't been sworn in yet. I, I got a call from Stephen Colbert to be on the Colbert report, you know, when he had the cable show. Yeah. I'm like, sure. And they're like, really? And I, I I'm like, <laughs> you know, people don't do my show, right? And I, there's a reason why. And I think, like, no, I don't care. I'll do whatever you want. And so and then they checked in right before. And they, are you really showing up? I'm like, yeah, I'm showing up. And, so, and I did it. And I had a great discussion with him. And yeah. he was great. I really, I really, you know, I did this leg wrestling thing with him. I wasn't planning <laughs> on doing that. And I lost. <laughs> 
And he's like, you were, you were a kicker on the BYU football team and your legs are like weak as can be. And I'm like, sorry. I'm like, it's been a few years. And, <laughs> yeah. and it was so funny because I did that and it got all this attention and stuff. And about, I don't know, eight, nine months later, I walk into this room and it's a big room and there were a bunch of people in there and Colbert was already in the room. He was like on the other side of the room. And somehow we kind of locked eyes right when I walked in the room and without missing a beat, he put his hand, cupped his hands around his, his uh, mouth and he yells out as loud as he can. Hey, spaghetti legs. (laughs) (laughs) Come over here. That's funny. (laughs) I see. I think that stuff is just, it's real. It was happening, but I, I think people become quote unquote politicians when they just sort of fake their way through it and they yeah. try to create a facade and but well, you can you know who those people are you you see them you think oh that's yeah how's that how'd the fox news thing happen like was that always the plan was to get out and transition to no fox? no it you know i had it's interesting because i think back i probably and somebody have to correct me if i'm wrong but i think i probably did more msnbc nbc and cnn than i did fox yeah um it's just, particularly here in Utah, more people watch Fox and they yeah. just don't watch as much of the other stuff. They didn't see all the times I was doing all the other stuff. But, um, like I, I got my degree in communications. I actually, uh, you know, that's what John Huntsman hired me for. And I thought I was actually pretty good at it. It seems it comes easy and natural to me. Um, when I decided to leave, when I had made the decision, all right, this is what we're going to do. You know, I had to go figure out what what the next job's going to be, yeah. right? And so I went and I spoke with MSNBC, although just lightly, CNN and and Fox News, and um, I got two offers and um, different deal structures and whatnot. But to be a contributor, I, I accepted the one from Fox News. And um, it's worked out great. Yeah. You know, I signed a one-year deal and then I signed a two-year deal and then I've we're still here. in the middle of a th- another two-year <laughs> deal. So things are going well. It's a good balance. Okay. It's a good balance for me. Do you, I mean. And you know what? You know what's interesting? When I, I knew Roger Ailes before, but that's not who signed the deal with me uh, at Fox because he was kind of just going out as I was uh, finishing my time in Congress. I sat down with the president of Fox after having signed the deal and it was kind of about like day one, you know, and I said, uh, so I showed up in New York and I said, look, I don't know what I don't know. So tell me what I need to know and what what you need for me. Because the contract's very light and it's just basically a contributor, you know, but uh, I wanted to put a little more meat on the bones by figuring it out. And he, I said, uh, what do you need me to do? And he said, well, first thing is you got to learn to say no. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he said, this, the other thing is you can say or do anything you want. You don't feel like you have to agree with the president or disagree with the president. Don't feel like you have to say yes or no. Just we're hiring you to give us your opinion. You, you have a unique perspective. You've had a unique set of experiences. Nobody else has had. Just tell us what you think. Tell us based on your experience, what you're seeing. You don't have to, and by no, he meant you got to say no if you don't want to, you know, we're going to ask you to do too many shows. So you got to learn to say no, which I thought was interesting. And 
And then he just said, just, just you be you. If you say something that you, you believe in, just it's authenticity that we sell here. So don't just be candid. Yeah. And they, that's they all sti- the direction they've ever given me. And they stick with that. They don't yeah. ever give you crap for saying this or that. No. Interesting. No, no. I think we all have such a different view of the media. Just like, no, there is a narrative. They'll, yeah. they'll kind of say, Hey, generally we're going to talk about this today. Um, so, you know, if you want to do some research, but they don't tell me like, and I could tell you 40% of the time we end up speaking about what they say they're going to talk to the other 60% of the time we're off on something else. Wow. So much of it is spontaneous. Hey, Congressman, even though I'm former, uh, Congressman, um, Joe Biden just said this. What do you think? You know, like <laughs> you have like three seconds to process it and spit something out. So, I mean, you've got to stay pretty involved. I mean, you got to, you got to keep up with everything. That's, you know, but that's what I've been doing for the last 15 right. years, right? Is uh, as long as I keep up on the news every day, we're good. Well, and how, how often has it helped you to have the contacts that you have from, you know, your previous career? So I, if I know something's going on, I will call. Right. There are a lot of senators and house members that are still there that I call say, Hey, how, help me understand this. Like, what did you mean by that? Or where is this going? And there's former staff members. There's other, the other people like that, that I, I got a pretty good network of people. I was going to say, and I'll shoot them. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That I can call and get a perspective. I mean, that's gotta be super helpful. It it, is. It's funny talking to you. I'm just like, are you ready to get back in there, please? Yeah. <laughs> like, come on. You empty Esther now, right? Well, I don't have my helmet on, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe at some point. Right right now, I, I love the balance of what we're doing. But um, yeah, maybe. I, I, mean, I don't want to take that off the table. So maybe. That's cool to hear. Because you were, man, if people want to watch entertaining politics, just YouTube Jason Chaffetz. Because, I mean, you were never afraid to just be tough. You get five minutes. You better get after it real quick. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, you dealt with some stuff. Yeah. Right? They, While you were there. They, yes. The, the people that, oh, I don't know, or, oh, I don't have this information. I just, the more I was there, the more I'm like, I am not putting up with this. I learned a little trick near the end I wish I had learned earlier, which is send them a letter in advance. <laughs> So they have no excuse. Oh, wow. They have no excuse. I did that with the attorney general. And I uh, said, I don't know. I'll ask him a tough question. He said, I don't know. I'll have to look into that. And I said, that's why I sent you a letter in advance of this. So you'd have that information. Did you get oh, my letter? man. And if, it, you know, then they, did you get my letter? How are they going to answer that? <laughs> Think about it. They got to scramble, right? Right. No, I didn't get your letter. Why didn't you? Wait, you didn't. I'm the chairman of the committee. I sent you a letter. You didn't get it. Who is your legislative liaison? What did they do with, you know, if they say yes, they say, well, why aren't you prepared? Oh man, that is brilliant. It, it turned out to be really well. Really good. And the <laughs> wow. other thing that I like to ask people that they always screw up, who do you work for? <laughs> <laughs> you get a bureaucrat in front of, well, I work for Tom, you know, Johnson or whatever. Like, no, you don't. You want to try that again? Who you work for? you work for the american people that's right and so this is the people's house yeah i'm a representative of the people of the united states of america so if you work for the people and i'm their representative in fact i'm the chairman of their 
their committee, then don't you feel an obligation to answer my question? <laughs> you know, oh, just stuff man. like that is so fun. Just made me think of Miracle, like my favorite hockey movie ever. <laughs> Who do you play for? Uh, University of Minnesota. <laughs> Another lap. Yep. <laughs> Keep going. Exactly. It's exactly right. <laughs> it is. It's like, who do you play for? USA. Like, all right, go get showered. Yeah. <laughs> You're free. So do you look back on anything that you wish had gone differently? Is there anything in your time as a congressman that you wish had gone differently or regret or something that you wish you would have thought of doing or, or wanted to change while you were there? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're, like look, you're you kind of silly if you if you think you did everything exactly right. But I have confidence that I did, based on the information that I had at the time. For sure, I was doing everything that that I could possibly do to make the right decision. I have no regrets in that regard. Um, learning the information that I have now, boy, there's some people that I'd love to re-question and bring up. And um, but. Uh, but, um, but at the same time, you know, I think we really did make a difference and you, you represent a district, so you got to do a lot of stuff and, and for the district and that, that I was happy about as well. I, I don't really have any regrets that way, but boy, you just become that much smarter and you know so much more of how things actually get done. Right. And uh, the sausage making in Congress is, it's pretty gross. So yeah, you got to get in the mire, but you can, you can also make a good positive, have a really positive effect. And right. uh, there's some really good people that are still there that I'm just thrilled that are still there. I'm like, hey, like James Langford, the Senator from Oklahoma. I'm like, I'm, I'm glad you're still there. Yeah. He and I sat shoulder to shoulder for on the committee and, and, um, uh, you know, Tim Scott is another one, the senator of South Carolina. Yeah. I talk to pretty frequently, and he's doing amazing things. That guy couldn't very possibly be a president, and uh, and glad he knows where Alpine, Utah is. <laughs> <laughs> so I have two questions. One was insight from Clint. He's like, make sure you ask him this. He said, "There's some kind of lapel or pin that's like." the key to the city. I could get you in anywhere. He's like, make sure you ask him about that. Okay. So members of Congress get an identifying (laughs) pin that you wear on your lapel and it allows you access with the Capitol Hill police. We kind of joke that, yeah, that's also the target to say, Hey, there's a member (laughs) of Congress. If you're, if you're a visitor and you kind of figure out what the pin looks like, then you can tell who's in Congress and who's not, but it's really there for the Capitol Hill police. Okay. Um, Capitol Hill police are, uh, mostly in uniform, but there are a lot of them that are not in uniform and a lot of undercover stuff, video stuff going on. And um, they need to be able to identify good guys and bad guys. Okay. And, um, but it also works kind of throughout the city because the, the secret service understands this. The other law enforcement agencies understand that. And it is sort of a, a way to get around the city and deal with, there's 17 different law enforcement agencies, as best I recall. And so, 17? Yeah, when you start thinking through Whoa. all the different things in D.C. Yeah. And so it just helps to have on the pin. And they really want you to be wearing the pin yeah. so that they can figure Because they can't, they don't have all 535 members of the House and Senate. The Senate pins are different than the House pins, but 
you still see people wearing those pins. So even up until about the president or vice president, cabinet members have pins. Are they all? Interesting. Yeah. You don't want some rookie, you know, secret service agent to, what, who's that? You know, they, it's just an identifying pin. Okay. And you get in a lot of trouble if you lose it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine someone else just putting that sucker on, right? What's to stop somebody from just making one themselves? I would think there would be a good big consequence. They're very difficult to make and they have some special stuff in them that would oh, man. be I'm very really difficult curious. for them to do. Yeah. I'm really curious now what these things look like. What's your second question? So my second question is more just in general. I feel like, and I'll, I mean, I'll speak from my standpoint that I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong, the younger generation isn't as involved. Like I know that's been like a big thing. I get the younger generation to get out and vote, right? Like, right. why do you think it's such an issue? I mean, and I can speak to myself personally, like I vote very rarely, right? And so like, like why, like how, like, is that a conscious effort? Like, how do we help get people excited about the process? Because, I mean, when you talk about it, you are, like, so passionate about it, and it makes you want to be involved. Like, I remember right. when Governor Cox came on, he talked about it. It's like, oh, I, I, I get that, you know? But, like, unless I'm talking to someone, I don't feel that same way. Right. And so, like, how do you help someone feel like they're actually it's, – it's worthwhile to get involved? Well, look, we want and need as many people to get involved, but it's also part of being in a citizen in, in the United States of America that you can choose not to get involved, and yeah. that's okay too. But um, I think the way we communicate has just so dramatically changed. You know, it used to be the three television stations and Walter Cronkite, and, uh -huh. you know, and the newspapers were um, a, a big deal. But now that has morphed so much that people are seeking the content they want to see. And you have this filtering from these social media companies that I think is very, very destructive to the process. I can tell you, I've, I've been on the receiving end of that from both Facebook, Twitter, and, and, um, and somewhat Instagram, which is obviously owned by Meta or yeah. Facebook, right? Um, so that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. And um, that's a part why I really like Fox because I think they genuinely try to give both sides of the story and that they give avenues to Democrats to make their case. Um, but how that filtering happens and how people do or do not get that information, it does scare me a little bit. Yeah. Personally, most people are surprised by this. I don't like the whole early voting thing. I think everybody should vote with the same information at the same time. If I could wave my magic wand, we would have sort of a three-day window, maybe a Thursday, Friday, Saturday uh, to vote um, and be able to authenticate the vote. And I think if you do that, you would have more confidence in the system, but you'd also be dealing with the same information. Yeah. And like, for instance, the Yunkin race, uh, which is the gu gubernatorial race in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Terry McAuliffe made a comment that really swayed the race where he talked about no parents should have no say in the curriculum that is developed for their students. Well, that debate where that was drawn out happened after early voting started. Wow. And so I just think we starting elections way too early. Um, 
And I, I just think that you should pause as a nation and somehow between that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you should be able to figure out when you can get there and and vote. And you know, there's going to be some instances you have uh, shut-ins, you have people with physical disabilities, and you have people who are maybe traveling for legitimate reasons. Yeah, of course, there needs to be an avenue for them, but I don't like the whole vote by mail. I just, I don't think that's the way to do it in mass. I think it's, it's dangerous. But it also creates a little bit of a laziness where you don't really need to think about it. Yeah. Um, I, I, or somebody else will think it through for you. And um, that, those are my concerns with it. Part of it is tradition. You know, I remember my mom and dad, they would drag me to the voting booth and I'd go and stand in line. And I thought it was really cool. They had a little curtain thing and you poke the, the place, you know, I, I <laughs> the hanging chad, the hanging chads. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty cool. And I think that's, you know, partly the upbringing. Yeah. Um, right now, if it's just a piece of mail, I don't know that you build that same sort of tradition. So I got a lot of reasons for it, but um, I also want people to vote who are informed and that are yeah. paying attention. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's a little too lazy to just say, oh, I'm going to vote for a Republican because I'm a Republican. Like, really? Um, that works, I guess, if I'm a Republican, but I don't want the people doing that on the other side of the aisle. Like, what are we doing? Why are we? Just think it through a little bit. Yeah. You know, at the end of the day, it's a, usually a race between two people. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, put on your big boy pants, think about it, pray about it, do whatever you need to do, but get informed and make some decisions. But Let's also make sure that you get the right information. And Do you ever see any like substantial change happening? Like whether it's to the parties, the voting system, like, like do you see anything like substantially changing with the government as we see it today or the yeah, process I mean, or the parties or you know anything like that? Well, there are always constitutional challenges and I, I you know, we got to make sure that we adhere to that. I don't believe that the constitution is a living breathing document that just changes at the whim of, you know, the politics of the moment. Um how we vote and do those types of things, Democrats are desperately trying to change the way we do that. Um I, and so I, there are lots of things that I worry about that I could continue to get in depth into. But yeah, look, uh, um, America figures these things out. We're still the greatest country on the face of the planet. We still, I think the American people recognize when we're off off track and they they usually right or wrong and get it going back in the direction that they want. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we're a growing nation. We're huge. 330 plus million people. Yikes! That's a that's a lot of people. A lot of people. And and look, I think fundamental to good government is the federal government should not have its tentacles in everything. To try to find something in your life that the federal government doesn't have something. And and by the way, everything doesn't need to be political. You know, sports yes, it does. and musical <laughs> and music and you know music. It just everything is political and it's ridiculous yeah and i think I it's it. exhausting yeah you know there's there's a proper role of government it's a limited one most of those things should be left to the people themselves or to the states let the federal government run the post office let them do the military let them do you know there's certain things we need to do but um right now the federal government is everywhere there shouldn't even be a Department of Education, in my mind, at the federal level. Right. Let the states run that with the school boards and the school districts. And 
we don't need a federal department of education. <laughs> it's so true. Because it is. There's so much difference between states. Yeah. And you should it's have good. say on ha- which, right. It's a like, good thing. It is yeah. a very good thing. And it should be, it should be up to the state yeah. on, you know, what kind of curriculum Things like they want to do. Just let the money flow to the kids. You'd yeah. save nearly a hundred billion dollars just on that one move. Wow. Or that money would flow to the kids and there'd be that much money going into education that right. instead has to be filtered. Right. So if there was one thing you could change in government and federal government, or let's just say in the house of representatives, one rule that you could change. Or I one would policy. fully the 10th amendment to the constitution is, is just that, that the, the limitations on what the federal government is doing. Um, it's just not fully appreciated. It's not fully instituted and it would, it would help starve the beast. Um, it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to live to, to, to narrow it to just one. Sure. But we just can't be all things to all people flow this back to the States. Let them make these types of decisions. The other thing I think would be key is I'd love to see a balanced budget amendment. Um, I don't think we'll ever get our financial house in order until the states step up and make that decision. Do we want our feds to live within their means or not? Because right now it's so out of control. So out of control. Wow. So speaking of states, how do you feel like we're doing here? Utah's great. It's a, it's, I, I, you know, I get to speak on the national stage regularly and I'm always bragging about Utah. We're, we're a better run state. We're fiscally responsible. I think we found the right balance. We have communities that, um, come together. You know, we have a large gay population here, but we got right. a very religious population here. We get along. Yeah, it, It's not, there isn't the contention that you feel in those other states. We're, we're also more diverse than I think most people realize. We have a large Pacific Islander population. We got people who served missions all around the world. I think this, so our language skills are amazing and that helps with this cohesiveness. Yeah, no one ever talks about that. That's a big deal. Yeah, it there is. A lot, there it's a, are a lot, lot of, of understanding. Speak two languages here. Yeah. Well, and that have experienced different cultures because of yeah, that, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there's a lot more, I don't want to call it tolerance, but there's a lot more deep understanding. You know, our son served a mission in Ghana. He loves Ghana. Right. He loves Africa, you know, and yeah. he has a deep understanding of it that maybe you don't find in other communities. I just hope we don't become Los Angeles or California. Ugh. And I, I worry that we're always. Like Heber. Yeah. We're always about growth. You know, let's grow, grow, grow. I don't know that I'm all, let's grow, grow, slow grow. down. Yeah. It really, really does. Take our time, create, keep that quality of life, and um, make sure that we got the water and resources. See, that's just it. That's the thing that bothers me so much is we grow. It's just cart before the horse. Like, it, it's... The roads? The, that's the number one thing for me. Like, just since I started Bam Bam, it's like, I live in Highland. And it's amazing how much my drive changes every year just because a new subdivision goes in, but the roads don't widen, you know, the schools aren't ready for it. And it's, it's, it's so true. I mean, look at Lehigh with water, like every year they've got to shut sprinklers off even earlier because they don't have water. Yeah. It, it's just, We're it's crazy. We're the second driest state in the nation. Yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's act like it, you know? Really? Yeah. But then the, po- the political part of it's really interesting too. Like my mom lives in Star Valley, Wyoming mm-hmm. and every, well, and then I grew up in Heber and it's, 
you go to Heber, it doesn't feel like Heber anymore. And yeah. you, you say like, let's not turn into California, you know, star Valley, all of the, during COVID, all of the property up there, which you could go up there and buy 50 acres for, you know, less than a hundred grand. And they came in and bought all of it. And they're already starting to feel the, like they all came Jackson and bought Hall. property yeah. to get away from the lockdowns in California and, and New York. But, yeah. but they're still bringing the politics with them. Yeah. Which is so interesting to me. So yeah, like I, we got to be careful of that stuff because yeah. I mean the growth. That's what I worry about. The growth can bite you in the butt. That's for sure. Yeah, we love living here though, but it's a special place. Yeah, but it can be ruined pretty easily if we're not careful. Just like anything can. So well, this was fascinating. Thank you so much. This was such a fun convo. Thank you. Thank you for coming, and this was awesome. Yeah, I'm. I'm my, you have my vote. I'm ready. <laughs> All right. I'm ready when you're ready. <laughs> well, thank I'll, you. I'll donate some meals to some. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll have Drew come and stand by the uh, cheese table. <laughs> when I'm doing the fundraiser. Shake some hands, yeah. <laughs> we'll get Taysom. That'll be the... That'll oh, yeah, be the, even better. That'd yeah, be great. Right? Yeah, that'll be, be the replacement. But, yeah, no, thanks for coming. This is very cool. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.